we're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. Mickey and the Duke. In case you wanted to finish here with me. Hey, everybody. Kurt Bavacqua here. Sitting on the pine in Dirty Kurt's dugout. Episode number 14. Boy, I'm excited about today's guest. And you'll find out why when we get him on the phone. We've talked about on the last couple of shows the snubs that have happened out of Cooperstown. Not necessarily directly, but indirectly with the voters for the Hall of Fame leaving guys out that are well-deserved. Well, one of my former teammates is, in my mind, at the top of that list. And that's Al Oliver. We're going to talk to him. We're going to chat to him, a chat with him about it. And we're also going to talk to him about what he's doing now, which might surprise you or might not. We will talk to him. We're also going to have Bob Kendrick on the phone today out of Kansas City, Missouri, who, as we speak, is honoring one of my former teammates at the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. We're going to talk to Bob about that facility, uh, something that he holds dear to his heart. He's the president. And we're also going to talk to him about why there are so few blacks in Major League Baseball today. This is Kurt Bavacqua on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. I welcome all my Patreon subscribers and everyone else listening. Because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. My former teammate and one of the guys that brings a smile to my face every time I see him, and I got the opportunity to do that last week, Al Oliver. What's up, big fella? Hey, nothing much, man. I'm just sitting here watching the Long Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I didn't realize they had recording devices when the Lone Ranger was on. Hey, I didn't think they did neither. <laughs> did you? But I tell you what. Usually Saturday afternoons when I'm at home, I'm usually watching the uh, the Long Ranger, Roy Rogers, Perry Mason, the old show. Boy, you know what? That's funny. That that's really funny because it brings back. That's why I love you so much. Because <laughs> you know what? Nobody else would get on and say something like that. Except me and possibly you. <laughs> and then well, there's Parkway, uh, Pops, uh, and that's the first thing that I want to talk about because you and I crossed paths uh, for the first time in the early 70s when we both played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Right. Uh, we talked about that last week. Um, you know, it, it brings a smile on my face just to think about that ball club. And then when you think about the individuals or on, that were on it, uh, you smile yeah. even bigger. Why right. Why do you think that was? Because I think we all felt the same way. I think what happened was with the Pirate organization, so many of us came up through the minor leagues together and through the organization number one. And we got a chance to know each other even before we got to the major leagues. And then, believe it or not, even when I look at these players, it was a type of uh, home training that they had. And the combination of that, and we were always able to deal with all types of people. And I really think that has a lot to do with it. 
And we really never had any issues because we knew each other. And we had just as much confidence uh, in our teammates as we did ourselves. And a perfect example would be yourself when you came over. I mean, you fit right in. And, and I know you didn't feel like a stranger because we accepted all players that came there. And I've heard it from a lot of players who came from other organizations even they gained confidence in their ability by being a pirate. Yeah, I wish uh, uh, Murtaugh and Chuck Tanner would have had as much confidence in me as the players did. <laughs> <laughs> but, boy, what, what a great group of guys. And the one thing that stands out, with the except you push the guys over to the side just for one second. Okay. Uh, the Richie Ziss of the world, the Bob Robertsons, the Steve Nikosius, the guy, you know, not the really big-name guys. And then right. you go to the Doc Ellis's and right. and the Willie Stargells and the Dave Parkers. And you go, well, how did those guys mix? Well, let me tell you how they mixed. And, and I want you to agree or disagree. They mixed because they were as big instigators, and I'm talking about the stars, as anybody on the whole club, especially Pops. That is correct. And that's something that only the players really knew, that he was a huge instigator. He was a big-time prankster. And, um, you know, that's the way that stories led. Uh, Will was a great one-on-one leader. You know, unlike um, Roberto was our true leader uh, when I first came to the big leagues. And Roberto led more by example on the field and how he carried himself. But Sarge was one of those kind of guys, one-on-one. He knew how to talk to people. He knew what to do to loosen those players up. Because when I first came to the big league, you know, I was being platooned. And that was something that, of course, I didn't like. And I really didn't know what it was. Like I told someone a couple of weeks ago, the only thing I knew about a platoon was when I was at Fort Knox in 1967. <laughs> that was the only thing I heard about a platoon. And I didn't know what it meant in baseball. So um, he was a- able to um, harness me along with uh, Roberto and just told me to relax, and they knew what to do. And how they did that was Starge was the type of guy, he knew that I wasn't a drinker, so him and Doc Ellis got together, and they brewed up this purple passion, this grape juice, and this doggone uh, alcohol, grain alcohol, and they mixed it up, and we had a team party. So all the players on the team knew what the plan was, except me. So <laughs> I saw sipping on this grape juice, I thought, not knowing they had grain alcohol in there. And then all of a sudden, I got on the roll. It, it didn't take much to get me rolling anyway, but <laughs> they knew how to push my button, Stars did, and Doc did. And those were the kind of things that Starge could do to, to loosen Al Oliver up. And he just knew what to do with each player. And that is what made him a great leader in which he was. So do you think Murtaugh played you at first base purposely? You know what, Kurt? That's something I've always thought about. <laughs> he, was, he, he was asked after that game, did he realize that he had an all-minority lineup? And his response to the news media was that he put up the lineup that night that he thought could win that game. And the reason why I don't know for sure 
And what's ironic is, to this day, Bob Robertson and I still talk about that, and I've asked him on occasion. I said, why didn't you play that night? And he said, Ollie, I have no idea. So he doesn't know. Well, so, uh, I, I, I tell you what, let me give you something to think about, and then I want to jump to something that makes me proud to be a former Major League player and proud to uh, have played professional baseball. But first with, uh, with you against Robertson, not against, but you and Bob's situation. Right. I think he put you in the lineup because you stayed back on the ball. Yeah. And you just exploded on it. And Bob Robertson was the, was a big, powerful right-handed hitter that pulled the ball mostly, and he could he would probably have been way out in front of Fryman, whereas Al Oliver was going to stay back and hit line drives back through the middle and in the right field like you normally do anyway. Well, maybe Kurt, you have missed your calling. You should be the manager. But anyway, <laughs> um, that makes sense to me. That's something that I would have never thought about. And you're right. And Woody Fryman was tough. Uh, on left-handers, but I did stay back and I waited. And so that was to my advantage, and that could have been the reason why he did that. I, I, that's something I never thought about. The next time I talked to Bob, I'm going to ask him if he thought like that. Just see what he had to say. But I think I think we, we in, have it. Interesting observation. Yeah, I think we got it. And the the thing about what makes me proud is, is something that you said in here and also Danny's reason to field the lineup to win the game that night is yeah. because not just with the Pirates, but I think with most other clubs, and there were some exceptions here and there with a couple of different people, but there was no color. No. Absolutely no, no color, and that's the way it, it is mostly throughout baseball because you yeah. and I became teammates later on in our careers in yeah. Texas. And sure That's enough, correct. we were blessed with Doc. <laughs> oh, no doubt, no doubt. And you know, you know, of course, most people didn't realize that Doc was the best friend that I had in baseball. And of course, as it turned out, I ended up flying to Los Angeles when he passed away to eulogize him. And they couldn't figure out how Al Oliver and Doc Ellis were the best of friends because we were different. We had different personalities. Mm-hmm. But I think that we kind of voided each other out. And I think that's the reason why we were the best of friends. But you're right. As I travel and I speak, I always use that 1971 World Championship Pirate team. We had black players, white players, and Latin players. And we all came together for one common cause, and that was to bring a World Championship back to Pittsburgh. We never had any issues with race when I was with Pittsburgh. And that was because, you know, as we have talked before on occasion, that we had a lot of characters on that team, as you are well aware of. And one thing about it was we were characters with character. And when you have people of character, then you don't have those racial issues. You don't have issues like a lot of other people have in our society we were about winning and doing well and pulling for one another because if everyone did their job our chances of winning was good well and the pirates did a lot of that back then yes we did that's for sure you know i'm going to bring up a couple of names here and uh we're going to go to a different subject 
and I'm going to bring these names up not to put them down because they were certainly great ball players, but I'm going to bring their names up because Al Oliver not only is in the same class, but he even put up better numbers than some of them. But yet, this man that I'm talking to right now should be enshrined in Cooperstown, and he's not. And you know what? He's probably the least affected by it than anybody in his circle, which is amazing, and we'll get into that a little bit. But you've got the Hawk, Andre Dawson, deserving. Uh, he yes. did hit 438 home runs, got a 279 batting average. But here's the thing that I look at, and the reason I brought these three guys up is that Andre Dawson was on nine MVP ballots. Or in other words, he got votes nine different times throughout his career. Okay. Tim Raines, who's also in Cooperstown, as we know, because he's was inducted in the last couple of years. 294 lifetime, 170 home runs, 2,600 hits on seven MVP ballots. Ralph Kiner, 369 home runs. That's the only number that got Ralph Kiner in the big league, in the Hall of Fame, I think, because he hit 279 and only had 1,400 hits on seven MVP ballots. Al Oliver was a career 303 hitter, 219 home runs. 2,700 hits plus, and was on 10 MVP ballots. That tells me that throughout your career, you were noticed by everybody in baseball, but yet you remain on the outside. What is going on, and on a daily basis, how pissed are you, and do you go around kicking trash cans all day? (laughs) Well, well, Kurt, you know, I think you said it best. You know, I'm not angry about it because it's totally out of my control. And people who know me well have said this. I knew what I did. And I know who I am. And and that's the reason why I'm not angry or bitter. Because it's totally out of my control. Um, Yes, I know the stats and everything is there. I really don't know the reason why um, I haven't been even on the ballot. And you have to be on the ballot in order for them to vote for you. And so uh, last time I was up, I was not on the ballot, so they couldn't vote for me. But I'm not mad at nobody because, you know, again, you know, I know what I did. And, you know, I'm not a critic. Um I've always been a very positive person, and you know there there's be some reasons that I might think of, but you know they're not legitimate. But you know some people feel that I still might go. But the one thing, Kurt, that has really kept me above board is that I have a real strong fan base. You know, fans know. Fans, they saw me play. And that's the thing that really has kept me above board and it's been a great feeling to travel. And I get this question everywhere I go, you know. But like I tell them, I just thank them for the respect that they have given my career. And I've just moved on with my life. Well, along with the strong fan base, you also have what I consider the reason that 
you feel the way you do. And it's a strong faith. Tell the yeah. people what you're doing now. What I'm doing now, I've traveled around the world doing motivational speaking, number one. And I've been doing that for about 20 to 25 years. Most of the players that I played with thought that um, I was doing that back then uh, <laughs> before I started doing it officially. I heard, you, I heard you a couple of times in the clubhouse. Yeah, I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then on April the 22nd, I got my minister's license. And then the same thing holds true. People who knew me all, all my life almost said, well, Scoop, you always preach. <laughs> so that part is nothing new. So the combination of the spiritual and, and the uh, life achievements, uh, life motivation, and traveling and telling about my life, because I have lived a life that is really almost unbelievable to a lot of people, like lose my parents when I was young. My mother, uh, I was 11 years old when I lost my dad. And my dad passed away the same day that I was called to the major leagues. And I had to leave his funeral to report to Forbesville. Um, and um, it was a bittersweet day, but I made that drive and became a major leaguer. So I've gone through a lot in my life, but I've always maintained a positive attitude. And I've always believed that there is a God that takes care of his children. And I think that we all believe that regardless of what faith we we have and what we believe in and if we just treat people right he will take care of the rest well uh i know you personally i wish everybody out there listening could get an opportunity to how if somebody wants to hear you speak do they go about it how can you be reached okay you know just like the uh, card i gave you the only thing they need to do is go to my site which is www.aloliver, and they will get my site. And um, on my site, we'll have the uh, contact person to get a hold to. And as a result of that, um, after that contact is made, then he will call me and say, well, here's a particular business or a college or a university, high school. And I also speak to places of worship, in which I enjoy doing as well. But the main thing that I like to do, and my slogan has always been, life is a hit, don't strike out. And I just feel that we need more people in our society today to go to the plate rather than just being spectators and talking. Take your turn at the plate, become parents, be parents, be good people, raise our children in a manner in which we know they should be raised, and that would eliminate a lot of our young people getting into trouble. And most of my speeches are really about life. And that's the thing that I think is very important to all of us is treating people right. Al, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the time you've given us. Uh, I know the people out there feel the same way after hearing you talk. Uh, continued success in the future. Uh, I hope our paths cross very soon. And I'll be rooting for you whenever your name comes up on that ballot because I know someday you're going to be enshrined in Cooperstown, and it's well-deserved. I appreciate that. And one thing about us, when we do get together, if it's 10 to 15 years from now, we'll be able to look at each other and laugh again. <laughs> Just like we did last week. <laughs> That's right. You're exactly right. Scoop, thank you so much. I'll talk okay, to you sir. soon, brother. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. 
Al Oliver. Boy, I tell you what, if you don't like that guy, you don't like anybody. That lineup that Al was talking about, Rennie Stennett at second base, who I saw go five for five in Wrigley Field one day, and his last hit was a double down the right field line, and it bounced before it got to home plate. The Buccos were a team famous for swinging at balls out of the strike zone, but the one thing they could do better than anybody, they would hit it. It was amazing. And Sanguian was at the top of the list. It was unbelievable some of the balls he used to get to. And Sangi was in this lineup, but I'm going to read it in order. Rennie Stennett at second, Gene Klein's in center field, Roberto Clemente is in right field. If you remember, a couple of months after this happened, Roberto died tragically in that plane crash uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, bringing supplies to the earthquake victims in Nicaragua. Willie Stargell was in, in left field, Manny Sanguin behind the plate, Dave Cash was at third base, replacing Richie Hebner, who was injured. That was one of the reasons this happened. But Al Oliver being at first, as you heard him tell the story, Bob Robertson normally played against right, uh, left-handed pitching because he was a right-handed hitter. Woody Fryman was hitting that day, but Al Oliver was in the lineup anyway. I think we came to the conclusion as to why. Jackie Hernandez was the shortstop. And Doc Ellis was the pitcher. Well, I had promised you Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, early on in the show. Evidently, Bob's festivities that are going on in Kansas City today has made him unable to contact and he's unable to get through to us because he's honoring a guy who was a former teammate of mine who I'm going to tell you a little story about. In 1965, Diego Segui, who is the guy being honored at the Negro League Museum today, relieved one of the more famous pitchers in the world. Everybody knows his name, but he really didn't pitch that many innings in the big leagues. His name was Satchel Page. Well, Satchel Page was brought back at the age of 58 in 1965. Yeah, Chuck Finley, Charlie Finley. He was a guy who would do anything to bring people in the seats. Well, this day he did because Satchel Page started the game, pitched three scoreless innings, only gave up one hit, and why he was taken out of the game is anybody's guess today. But he was relieved by Diego Segui. Which brings me to another topic, because we are going to have Bob Kendrick on the show, probably the next show, because I know he's going to call me, he's going to be all apologies as to why he couldn't make it today. And you know what? Things happen. But he runs something that he's very proud of. He's the president of the Negro League Museum. And one of the topics that I was going to talk to him about, along with what he sees on a daily basis in his museum, is why there are so few blacks at the major league level. I know we've hit on this topic before, but Bob Kendrick couldn't be a more perfect guy to talk to it about. And, and one of the other things is I'm wondering if the numbers aren't skewed even more. What about mixed race players? What category did he put them in? Of course, the Derek Jeters of the world, 
are going to be in the black percentage. Diego Segui is being honored by the Negro League Museum today, and Diego's from Cuba. So I say if Diego Segui was in the big leagues today, he would be in the black percentage. So is the black percentage the number of black players playing in the major leagues today even lower than we think? And should there be a mixed race segment to where, because we're separating Asians, we're separating the whites from the blacks, not literally, and then the Latins. Do you put them all in one group? Is that the way to do it? I don't know the answer to this. But with all the numbers out there, Somebody should know. They've got the numbers broken down as far as African-American, Caucasian, Asian, and Latin. That's broken down. The biggest percentage of black players was back in 1981. And that percentage was 18.7. You know what it was in 2012? 7.2. Today, it's a little bit higher. The Latin percentage has increased dramatically. I mean, the Latin percentage is probably around the mid-30s now. And you know what? It's going to continue to rise. It will. And we're going to talk about that with Bob Kendrick on the next show. Let's talk about what's happening to baseball today. And then I'll let you guys go for today. The Orioles are 50-plus games behind in the American League East. How do you think the American League East feels about themselves with the Red Sox knocking on 100 wins? Okay, I'll give you the Yankees. They're doing okay. Well, it's going to be the Indians in the Central, Astros in the West, with the A's biting on their heels. In the National League, you know what? It's anybody's guess who's going to reach the second tier of the postseason because you've got the Braves, Phillies, Cubs, Brewers, Cardinals, along with the Rockies, D-backs, and Dodgers, all trying to win their respective divisions with the two losers having to play the dreaded wild card game. Is that wild card game going to be fair? I think the Yankees and A's have played each other six times this year. They've scored almost identical number of runs and they're three and three wow is it fair for two teams to go through an entire season and I know we talk about this every single year but in this particular case if in fact the Yankees and A's are the wild card teams and they finish with records of 90 plus wins is it fair that these two teams go to one game when they've won 90-plus games, won more games than possibly the two teams, with the exception of the Red Sox, that are going to win the divisions and have to battle it with one game. I feel there has to be something done in a scenario similar to that 
That's for a show in the future. If you're a Los Angeles Angels fan, I hate that name. I don't know why. I just do. It should be the Anaheim Angels. That's where they are. I don't know what to tell you, folks. Other than next year is going to be worse than this year. No Otani. Boy, that guy can hit. I think the other day he hit his 19th home run. And he's hitting close to 300. Mike Trout starting to say goodbye. Yeah. Let's face it. In 2020, when he becomes a free agent after that season, he's not staying in Anaheim. So you got a new manager, and he better put some wins up if he knows what's good for him. And a team a little south of there. Are the Padres going to be a lot better sooner than everybody expected? According to MLB Pipeline, the Padres have the top minor league system in the big leagues. Waiting to hit the scene at the major league level are Fernando Tatis Jr., who got who was injured or else he would probably be in a Padre uniform right now. He's the possibly the number one prospect in baseball. And then there's pitchers, Mackenzie Gore, Chris Paddock, Adrian Morneau, Logan Allen, Ryan Weathers, Cal Quintrell, Anderson Espinoza, and Luis Patino. Wow. Jacob Nix, Urias, Francisco Mejia. I've already been called at a big club with Mejia hitting two home runs in his first two at-bats. Padre fans got a lot to look forward to. When you mix these kids' names in with a few guys that are on the Major League roster already, like Hunter Renfro, who might be developing into one of the top talents, young talents, in the big leagues. And I'm watching, because I'm forced to, the Astros and Boston Red Sox the other night. And you know what I noticed? And I don't know if anybody made note. But you know how the center field camera, you can see the catcher giving signs? And you know how the catcher gives signs, multiple signs, when there's a runner on second base so that the second base runner can't relay what the pitch is going to be to the hitter? And, folks, this has been happening for years, and I don't want to hear anything from the geeks out there about this is cheating because that's the biggest bunch of bull I ever heard. And if you ever want to call the show and argue about it, be my guest. But I noticed that the Astros were putting down multiple signs. Well, no big deal. You just said so, Kurt. You put down multiple signs when there's a guy on second. Well, guess what? There wasn't anybody on base. You know what that tells me? What does it tell you? Go ahead, scratch your head, think for a minute. Well, right away, I know that the Astros think that the Boston Red Sox are stealing signs. And they're relaying those signs to the hitters. That's the only reason that the catcher would put down multiple signs with nobody on base. Think about that for a while. Are the Boston Red Sox still cheating? Well, evidently, there's at least one team out there 
that thinks they are. This is Kurt Bavakwa. I appreciate you joining me on The Pine today. If you want to continue to listen to this show and continue to be a part of it, please look into being a supporter. I know you can go to patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua and get all the information. You can see all of what's going on as far as becoming a Patreon member. Get special programming that other folks don't get. Do it. Support this show, and we will talk to you soon. Goodbye, everybody. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell. And Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talk.